you are listening to the Entrust Podcast. This weekly course seeks to provide theological training within a ministry setting so you can take what you learn and share it with others. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. For now, here is this week's episode. So tonight we're going to be talking about within servant leadership, what does it mean to be leading in ministry, right? And so we may go, I'm not even in ministry. And I would say if you bear the name of Jesus, guess what? You were an ambassador for Christ. You were in the ministry. You may not ever get a paycheck from a missions organization or a Christian whatever, but I am here to say that if you are bearing the name of Jesus, you are an ambassador for Christ and therefore ought to live in such a way. And hopefully this is going to maybe open up your eyes as far as our discipleship and what that even is supposed to look like. Let me explain it this way. First opening statements there for us to consider Ambitious yet isolated individuals will not advance kingdom work. You go, wait a minute, I've known ambitious or I've known uh, people who have been really go-getters for kingdom work, but if they remain isolated, guess what happens when they die? It's over, right? If, If they have lived their life in such a way where they are ambitious yet they're isolated, when their life ends, the work is over. Uh, I was, uh, I, I, a lot of times when I will talk with churches or I, going through even leadership here at this church, sometimes I've asked people like, besides you, who knows what you do, right? And uh, I was laughing one day with one of our facilities guys and I said, I'm not even talking about if you retire one day, if you got hit by a truck tomorrow, could we unlock that door? You know what I'm saying? Like there are some times where all the information flows through one person and nobody else has access to it. And what's supposed to happen is there always should be somebody that you're pouring into, that you're sharing with, that you're giving those next things. Now Jesus' plan to reach the world hinges on our ability to pass lessons and provide opportunities to those behind us. Have you been the benefit of anybody passing on a lesson to you? Uh, you are where you are today because somebody gave you a certain set of opportunities or didn't give you a certain set of opportunities, right? Uh, I laugh and think about all the times. Uh, so for many years, uh, some of y'all know this, some of you don't know this about my story. Before I was here, part of my job in ministry was I led worship. And I did a lot of different things on our church staff, but I was a worship leader every single week. And it is really funny for me because years later... Uh, Years before, the first time I ever sang in church, I was probably 13 or 14 years old. I'd just come back from church camp. I'd learned three chords on a guitar, which meant, obviously, I could play and sing at the same time, right? And so since we were coming back from church camp, they said, let's let the kid who's got a guitar play a worship song. It was something that, uh, an old school worship song, I think it was Joy. Uh, I got the Joy, Joy. Okay, it was a lot old school, okay? Some of y'all would know what, some of you wouldn't. Um, I didn't, no one told me this at the time, but that was a Sunday night service because they did not trust me with the Sunday morning. If you understand that, you understand. Okay, like we'll let them at Sunday night when there's not a lot of people here, okay? But so I sang, I played the guitar and I sang and unbeknownst to me, the next morning the staff gathered on their Monday morning staff meeting and the music minister at that time said, guys, whatever you do, do not ever let that boy play the guitar or sing again. That was horrible, okay? Like that was the kind of, recap of what had happened the night before and he probably had a lot of validity to what he said but how many of you know you can't get good at something until somebody gives you a shot right you gotta have an opportunity to try something out in some type of safe environment to say why don't you try this and now you try it and you did decent with it but let me take you along here on the side and show you some things that you might could do differently next time right you and i 
are examples of the opportunities that have been afforded us or the ones that we have missed. We are where we are because people have allowed us to take certain opportunities or maybe they kept them from us. And so this is why it's so important. A question for us to consider tonight, who is the leader in a church or ministry that impacted you significantly? And what did that person do to stand out in your mind? Now, I just want you to think for a moment. Does anybody have somebody in your life that has played a serious significant spiritual impact on you. Raise your hand if you got somebody. Think, okay? All right, let me ask another survey question. How many of you is it a family member? Raise your hand. Okay, awesome. How many of you is it uh, a mentor? Raise your hand. How many of you would say, ah, somebody that was on a church staff, a pastor, a preacher, or something like that? Okay, awesome. So got all kinds of different variations. Some of you are like, what if that one person was all the same? Okay, like, and that may have been true, right? Uh, you might have somebody like that. Now, now, here's what I love thinking about. Who's the leader that impacted you significantly? Got somebody in your mind that's impacted you? Got them in your head? Okay, great. Here's what I want to do. Survey time. What are some of the characteristics of that individual that made an impact on you? Okay? What are some of the characteristics? I'll start with one, and then I'm going to open up and want you guys to give me a few others. Here's mine. Intentional. Okay? This person was intentional with me. Who else has one? What you got? Patient. Loving, persistent, persistent compassionate, understanding. understanding. This is what always blows my mind about this experiment. I've done this probably four, 45 times or something. And you know what I've never heard? Hey, what did that person do to stand out in your mind? I have never, ever heard somebody say, they could preach a sermon really well. Never once. Never heard they could exegete biblical passages in the Hebrew and the Greek languages so well, right? I've never heard anybody say they could sing a solo. You know what? I always hear exactly what you said. Intentional, consistent, loving, patient, compassionate. All things, by the way, every single one of us can give. Not one of those things can any of you say, I can't do that. Now, if I said, can you sing a solo? You'd be like, mm-mm, that's not happening, Okay. But I, if I said, could you be compassionate to somebody in need? The answer is yes, you could. You've got Christ within you. And so this is why we've got to get to the place of what does it mean to lead others in ministry? Here's the problem, how I lay out for us, okay? While we miss this opportunity, you got impacted by people who poured their lives into you. You need to impact other people by pouring your life into them. But individualistic mindsets cause us to focus more on working in such a way that others depend on us. If you live your life, individualistic mindset, it's all up, dependent upon you. It will cause you to focus more on working on a way where other people depend on you. They're not thinking about others or how the group can. They come solely dependent on what you can do. And why do we want people to do that? Because we like the affirmation. We like people to know they can't make it without us. If I'm, right, so um, two weeks ago, I'm preaching at a camp, and so we've got a, a resident in our church who preached for me, and you know what, selfishly, I want to hear, and he did horrible, Trav, it was just horrible, we were missing you so much, you know, we're so glad that you got back in the pulpit, I tell you, it was just like, we were just, you know, it, it was, I'm, we're just, we just missed you, that's what I, my flesh wants to hear, right, kingdom of God wise, you know what I want to hear? We didn't miss a beat. God used them. It's being multiplied through other people, right? That, that's what we want to hear. But deep down, 
in my flesh, I just kind of want to know, man, it all falls apart when you're not there, Trav, right? But that's not sustainable, is it? I'm not going to be here forever. Uh, I could do something dumb and not be here, right? Okay. Uh, and also it limits what can be done. Now, here's what we want to do. We want to avoid platform building personalities. We also want to avoid ambition lacking organizations. This is what kind of, let me give you the tension here. Okay. As a church, I don't want to be a, a, a built upon platform building personalities. Oh, we have this pastor who does this. We've got this worship team that does this. It's all about personality, personality. It's focused on the individual. Because what happens when you focus on the individual? What happens if the individual falls? There are churches all around, small, medium, and large size, that when the personality fails, the church implodes. Happens all the time, right? Because it's built around that personality. We don't want that. We want to avoid that platform building personalities. We also, though, want to avoid ambition-lacking organizations. You go, what does that mean? I don't want to be a part of a church that's lazy, right? Okay? I don't want to be a part of a church that goes, ah, we'll just kind of get around to it. Like, I want to be a part of a church that says, let's do this thing. Let's get after it. Like, one of my mentors says, I want to be a part of a church that is lined up with the kind of people who say, we'll charge the gates of hell with water pistols if that's all we got, right? Like, we'll go after this. We're not fearful of it. Like, let's get after it. We, we sometimes just dream so many small dreams for God. Pray such small prayers. Like, I want to be the type of person who goes, no, if we're going to do this, like, let's, let's do this with everything we have. So we, how, do we, how do we avoid not having ambition without building up the personality? You follow? Like, it feels like it's easier to do one or the other here. But if we needed more than a halfway Christ, then we should offer more than a mediocre commitment. You want a full Savior. You want a full Lord. And that means that you need to be a full disciple, which means this. If we're going to do anything in his name, we better do it well. Right? That's the point of the sermon today. So we were talking about that third commandment. If we're going to do anything in his name, we want to do it well. We don't want to do it mediocre. We're not following a Christ who gave half of himself to us. He didn't say it's somewhat finished. He said it is finished. He is a full, thorough, complete Savior. And so therefore, we don't want to offer him anything less than our all. John Wesley, um, a pastor from yesteryear, said it this way, and I love it. Give me 10 men that hate nothing but sin and love nothing but God, and we will change the world. I love that right there, right? Any of y'all part of a group of men or women that this is your squad, this is your gospel group, these are your friends? Give me 10 men that hate nothing but sin and love nothing but God, and we'll change the world. How do you know that could happen? Look at the disciples, folks. Jesus is gone. They didn't even have 12. They had how many, really? They had 11. Judas had hung himself, and, and what do they have? They got fishermen leading the theological department, okay? We got a tax collector working for the Roman government. We got Simon the Zealot trying to overthrow the Roman government, and these 11 guys are supposed to try to do something, and yet here we are in Greenville, South Carolina, on the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, in a different language, in a different continent, in a different country, still talking about the Savior that they said got up from the grave. Apparently... Give me 10 men who hate nothing but sin and love nothing but God, and you can change the world. That's why we're here today. That's why we have the hope that we have. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn, if you've got your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 21, to a really, really random passage of Scripture that I absolutely adore. I know that sounds like a shocker to you. Um, but uh, we're going to look at the leader, David. 
uh, just for a few moments here tonight. We're going to look at what happened in the last few years of David's ministry and leadership and what was happening. To do so, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson uh, in the Bible really quick to see how we got up here. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created a people, made them after their own likeness. He gave them a place to live. He was going to be their king. He was going to be their ruler. He was going to be their God. They would live in his place, enjoy his presence, be his people. But sin caused them to leave the garden. And as a result, ever since Adam and Eve, God's people have been wandering. In fact, if you go through the book of Genesis, you continue to see the people wandering east from the door to the Garden of Eden. They keep drifting away from God. And along the way, God continued to lead them, save them, redeem them, redirect them through the laws, and they kept rebelling rebelling against them. And one of the things that happened tragically in the Bible, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God's people, who have up to this point through Genesis to 1 Samuel, have worked without a king, come to the prophet priest Samuel and say, we want a king like all the other nations around us. Samuel says, you don't need a king. God's your king. We want another one. What do you want? We want one like our enemy nations have. Oh, you mean the ones that our, our king has always beaten? Our God has always defeated? That's what you want? You know, we, we want one. In fact, he asked them what type of king they wanted. And you know one of the major descriptions they said? We want a tall one. You, it's, it's, I'm sorry. Someone to lead the whole nation, to make sure we're following after God, to gather the troops, to to set up the administration. What type of characteristic do you want to define this man's administration? We want height. That's what we want. We want him really tall. So when they found Saul, you know what the description of him was? He was one head above everybody else in Israel. Everybody had to literally look up to him. And they thought... You know what would be great when we're in a battle with the other nation? We want to look out and go, look at our tall king. We can trust in our tall king. Our tall king can fight our battles for us. He's a visual representation of everything we want to be, and his height is going to get us through. And this is what's crazy. King Saul was leading well until he came up against somebody taller. See, Israel trusted in King Saul the tall until Goliath the taller surpassed him. You remember Goliath? Okay, maybe no one's ever shown you this part of the story, but this blows my mind. (laughs) Out of all the things Israel could have trusted in, we want a tall king. God goes, height is what you're going for? Height. We want him really tall. (laughs) This is going to be easy. Okay, here's the tallest guy I got. Now, he's a train wreck emotionally. He's got some issues, and he's going to really start working out all kinds of different ways. But if you want a tall king, we'll give you a tall king. And here's King Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else. That's what they put their trust in. And then all of a sudden, Goliath comes on the scene. Wow. He's taller than Saul. But Saul, you can fight him, right? Where is Saul, by the way? Oh, he's in the tent. His big old knees are shaking. <laughs> okay, like... He, he hasn't come out of the battlefield because he's scared to death. Yeah, but he's the tallest one we got. He ain't tall enough. Not to fight that big drink of water, right? He got no hope to fight this guy. So what happens is Saul's in the tent, scared to death. And then there's a young boy. He's not even the first boy, is he? Not the oldest. Definitely not the tallest. Not the strongest. 
He's a shepherd boy, not even been invited to the battlefield. Comes out to check his brothers. And what happens is, Goliath has been throwing his insults at God and at God's people for days upon days. Same threats every day. Somebody come out and fight me. Saul won't come out and fight. Another soldier will come out and fight. And that day, David comes and brings some lunches to his brothers. And here's that big old drink of water saying, define, follow, connecting everything from the sermon today, the name of his God. I curse the name of your God. Not one of you is willing to fight me. The name of my God is stronger than your name. And David goes, excuse me? And how many of you have gone down there to fight him? Nobody has. Why? Have you seen the size of the giant? And David does not say it in this way, but I guarantee his heart is saying, have you seen the size of our God? He can fight him. Why, why are you not running down the battlefield? And so this young boy, kind of short, kind of ruddy, not that big of a deal, not the tallest, not the brightest, not the smartest, not the first, not the strongest. He runs down there. And how does he fight? David defeated that giant because he trusted God's strength instead of his own. Now we find a man who's after God's own heart, right? It's not trusting in his own strength, not trusting in his own size. No, no, no. He is trusting in the size of his God. In fact, it's beautiful. In 1 Samuel 17, 46, 47, he says, I'm going to defeat you today. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to knock you down. I'm going to take your head off. And everybody here is going to know the name of our God. You will know it. The nations will know it. They will know our God. That's how we're going to fight today. And so David takes that sling, sinks it right in the forehead of Goliath, takes his own sword, chops his head off, and then parades it around. And guess what happens to that army? They flee. And here comes David that is like this. Now, David, mighty warrior, right? Plays a mean harp, but he's a mighty warrior too, okay, right? He likes to write poetry, but he will take your head off if he's got to. He is an all-encompassing type of man. And eventually he becomes king and he leads well. And to do so, he also inspires a group of people to follow after him. David gathered and inspired a group of what they call the mighty men. You ever heard of this phrase? David's mighty men. David gathered and inspired a group of mighty men who were valiant in battle and they were loyal to their king. These boys, whoo-wee, uh, they are some, uh, y'all ever had that friend who like is, is some incredible like, hey, there's nobody should probably do this. Don't try this at home. And he goes, I'll do it. David had a whole squad of them, okay? Whole squad of mighty men. And now follow this. Um, why were they mighty? Why were they ambitious? Why were they brave? They had a king that was like that. They, they had a king that they... They were wanting to follow. They were like, man, did you hear the legend of David fighting Goliath? I'm not scared of those two boys down there. I'll go fight them. I'm not scared of that guy with that, that crazy looking weapon there. I, I, I'll take him on. I, I'll, I'll do whatever I've got to do. And, and so this is where we find ourselves in chapter 21. David, though, is not as young as he used to be. He's got a group of soldiers now. Uh, that those mighty men that are following along in him. And, and, and 2 Samuel chapter 21, look at verse 15. The Philistines again waged war against Israel. David went down with his soldiers and they fought the Philistines, but David became exhausted. Then Ishbi Banab, one of the descendants of the giant whose bronze spear weighed about eight pounds and wore new armor, intended to kill who? David. 
But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to his aid, struck the Philistine, and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You must never again go out with us to battle. You must not extinguish the lamp of Israel. All right, y'all get what's happening? Uh, just so you know, David is going to pass away a few chapters later. So David is in the later years of his life. But have y'all ever known that it don't matter how old a man gets, try to tell him what he can't do, <laughs> okay, right? I guarantee I can do it if I have a pastor friend who said, I still at 70s can still do everything I did at 30. It just takes me four times as long to recover from it. Right? Okay, like I, I can do it. I'll try. I'll run. I'll fight. I'll, I'll do whatever. I'll lift this. You don't tell a man, oh, you don't have to worry about that. You can't do that anymore. David is in the later years of his life and he's fighting. And what happens this moment is there comes this guy who's a descendant of a giant like the one he killed. And David's probably like, I killed Goliath. I can kill this boy. And he can't fight like he used to, and this one almost gets the best of him. So one of his mighty men comes, runs in, takes out the giant, and they pull David aside and said, we need you to do this part of the battle, but not this part of the battle. We need you to lead. We don't need you to pick up the sword and spear. And I imagine David going, who are you to think I can't fight anymore, right? Okay, I can fight just the best. I was, you know, I was fighting when you guys were still in diapers. I can't take these guys down, right? And yet... They talked some sense into him. So when David was almost killed in his old age, the mighty men refused him the right to return to battle. Major transition in David's life. Challenging place for him to be. I'm sure as frustrating as all get out. So now what's going to happen? Well, you probably are worried. Oh, man, they're going to start losing the battles now. David can't fight. David's, he's now, you know, somebody's having to kind of, Wheel him out of battle. He can't do what he used to do. What's going to happen? I'm so glad you asked. Look at verse 18. After this, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. And the t- at that time, Sibachai the Hushathite killed Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giant. Let me pause for a second. Any of y'all ever heard the story of Sibachai the Hushathite? You've heard about David and Goliath, right? You ever told your kid about Sibachai the Hushathite? The answer is no, because you can't say it. Okay, right? And I'm making it up as I'm saying it right now, okay? Nobody ever talks. We never sing a song about Sibachai the Hushathite. Never in VBS did anybody dress up as Sibachai the Hushathite. But apparently, this man is a bad mamma jamma. Okay, like, he fought a giant and killed him. Goes on from there. Verse 19. Uh, once again, there was a battle with the Philistines at Gob, and Elohanan, son of Jerah-Orgim, the Bethlehemite, Killed Goliath of Gath, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. By the way, I ask you again, anybody ever told a story of Elohanan? No. Anybody named their kid Elohanan? No. You never heard of him. One more. Verse 20. Uh, At Gath, there was still another battle. A huge man was there with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He too was descended from a giant. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of David's brother Shimei, killed him. Now, how many of y'all ever seen that picture in Bible school, right? Okay, right? Like some, some, some guy coming in with 24 digits, right? Okay, like literally just some type of freak of nature, massive giant status, all this kind of stuff. And what does it say? Jonathan killed him. Is there a long battle? Eh, pretty quick. Jonathan just took it, all his digits off, okay? All 24, they done. <laughs> nothing to hold on to, nothing to fight with anymore. Verse 22, these four were descended from a giant in Gath and were killed by, look at this, ready? They were killed by David and his soldiers. David didn't kill those giants, or did he? 
David wasn't the one with the sword in his hand, but he had something else that he had done, right? He had been the example that taught those boys how to fight. And in the later years of his life, when he couldn't pick up the sword, those men were doing more with him sitting in his retirement chair, if you will, than if he was the only one running to the battlefield. See, David was more victorious in his feeble days due to his bravery being multiplied among others. And this is why this passage, I know everybody gets excited about David and Goliath, but I'm telling you, this passage fires me up. I love it. Why? Because nobody talks about it, (laughs) number one. And number two, if you dial in to really think about it, that phrase, (laughs) David killed all those giants. David and his soldiers did. David didn't physically kill him, but through his leadership, his example, his bravery, it caused the next generation to say, when a giant comes to battle, we won't run away, we'll fight. And this, my friends, is the power of mentoring, leadership, example, and discipleship. Think about the adjustments that we need to make. If you think about why was David such an anomaly during the reign of King Saul? Because King Saul was a wimp, right? He was scared to death, hiding away. And so for somebody to bust down the lines going, I'll take the giant, was a shock to everybody's system. Like, who does this? We've never seen any bravery like this. Like, we weren't ready for someone like Saul to come in. And Saul's used to this, and now David's coming to fight. It was a shock. But when David is the king, this passage that I just read to you, they don't even make the headlines. In fact, most of you, if we were honest, you go, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. You may have never read this passage before. And why is it that big of a deal? When David kills Goliath, it's headline news for everybody to see. It's one of the top 10 Bible stories we ever share. When these guys kill giants, it's not even mentioned. Why? Because it's almost expected when your leader is a giant slaying leader, it's just business as usual. And that's the power of this example. See, giant slaying leaders make giant slaying followers. That was the shift that happened in the nation of Israel from Saul to David. Saul was a weak, scared king. David rose up and his bravery shocked them all. When David the brave was king, his mighty men did exactly the same type of things that he would do. And it really didn't make the headline news because what was news about it? This is just what we do because our leader has set the pace and therefore we want to go after it. I will just say that as I think of an application for us here tonight, people desperately need leaders who bravely follow God. I want to follow after people who are crazy enough to believe God at his word that he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I'm not moved by people who pray weak prayers. I'm not motivated by people who want to take small advances for the kingdom of God with caution and fear. I am motivated by those who say, God has said we can do it and let's go do it and risk it all. That's who I want to follow. That's who I, 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 I just, I, I feel so, time, so, many, so ashamed at so often how little we think of what God can do. And God answers a prayer and we almost all seem so shocked. Can you believe that? So-and-so was healed. What makes you think God couldn't do that? Can you believe that? We raised all those money for those missionaries. I mean, we, we thought we were going to raise this, and he did that. Isn't that unbelievable? 
And why would we think He would do anything less than that? He is God. He's not short on supplies or resources or power or ability or desire. He can do it all. So people are, why, why are uh, churches and Christianity and movements and ministries watered down? Because we don't have people bravely following after God. It's just weak. It's half-hearted. It's kind of timid. And yet 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Right? You haven't, you haven't followed God. Be following him in fear? Not like that. So I was scared to death. So this is the example of David. I want you to catch, right? This is what's beautiful about it. David is remembered, rightfully so. And if we think about David, we typically think about two other people in his life. It's either Goliath or Bathsheba, right? And there's, there's a lesson there we ain't going to get into tonight. But for every success, a lot of times there's some gray area in our life that we don't want to make the headlines either, right? For every Goliath in David's life, there's always a Bathsheba somewhere. Something is up and down, up and down, up and down. And this is why it's problematic to trust in a man or a woman, an individual, because even the best of people will always let you down. Did you know that? If you have not realized that, I want to go ahead and spoil the rest of your life for you. People will break your heart, right? People will get frustrated. I think my microphone just went out. Hold on a sec. People will break your heart. People will do things that will hurt you. People will do things in your life that will overwhelm you at how little and how minute that they walk away over small things and they, they drift away, it will blow your mind. In fact, you will be overwhelmed in this life at how many times people will completely let you down. I would imagine that a lot of us in this room, I did not say this in any other service today, but tonight at the 5 o'clock, and for some reason I felt like I needed to. But one of the things about misusing the name of the Lord our God in vain, the, one of the biggest issues is this. How many people have a God wound because of a church hurt? Right? Somebody spoke in the name of Jesus, a pastor, a mentor, a leader, a parent, and they spoke on behalf of God and let us down, and therefore we took all our frustration out on God when we need to remember God didn't let us down, the person did. Follow? So, so here's the issue. If you put all of your hope on an individual, they will let you down. My sweet daughter, Gloria, she's 11. She is the most encouraging thing I've ever met in my life. I will weekly tell her and say, I look at her after she has done something sweet to encourage my soul, and I will look at her and say, everybody, everybody in this world needs a Gloria in their life. Somebody like her who just says, Daddy, you're the best. I'm so glad you did it. She, she did this thing last last few weeks. Um, I'll, typically after a sermon that they're in, I'll, I'll sit down at the table and I'll say, hey family, did everything make sense today? You're at the 1030 service and I still have a five o'clock service that I can fix it. If something didn't make sense, if I didn't say it well, if I didn't say it pat, is there something wrong? And she'll go, daddy, that made so much sense. Okay, thank you, dear. I appreciate that. And so she started writing notes on my whiteboard, but she acts as if she'll go, daddy, did you see this? Somebody wrote a note on your board. And I was like, oh yeah, what does it say? Today's sermon was so incredible. You are the best pastor in the world. And I'm like, can you please tell me? I don't know who put that down, Dad. Okay. And she writes all these uh, wonderful little sayings on. She wrote one a couple weeks ago that I will not erase. She will have to erase. I have taken a picture. I will probably put this thing in a frame if I will. Uh, but it basically has a picture of me. 
It's rather flattering. I've got a great beard. I am bald as all get out. But in this picture, she writes, what an incredible sermon today. I hope, and I really do mean this, that you will be my pastor forever. Now, the rest of y'all can hate my guts. I'm fine. Okay, like, I don't, you can say, we need a new pastor. You, you can say that all you want to. Gloria thinks I need to be her pastor forever. The other day I told her, I said, what happens if you gonna, what if, what if, what if you grow up and you marry a pastor? She goes, I'm still going to church for you. I'm like, good girl. Okay, good girl. Like, now, within all that hope, within all that admiration, within all that love and that encouragement that she pours into my life, and I go, oh man, everybody needs a glory in their life. Everybody needs somebody encouraging in their life. This is what I know. I will let her down. I am not Jesus. I am not perfect. And she, if she has not seen kinks in my armor yet, she will. Right? It's going to happen. She got rose-colored glasses on. And I want her to keep them as long as she can. But one day she's going to realize he didn't have it all together. And this is why it's so important that no matter how good the leader is, you can't put all your focus on any individual that leads. Because while we know what discipleship is, we're not called to follow an individual. We're called to follow a Savior. And know that it is better to multiply a movement than memorialize a mentor. And if we're not careful, we will memorialize a mentor, lift them up to a level of which God does not want us to esteem them to, and put them at such a high mark that we believe they cannot fall when they let us down. We crumble. It's better to multiply a movement. Let's get more giant slain followers out there rather than just always sing the songs of how David did it back then. What a waste if all we have is, remember back when so-and-so did this? That type of example should motivate us to follow suit, right? Like I, I, to me, I am always, always thinking like, God, I, I don't want to rest in yet last year's successes. Like, God, do something now. Like there are times when I go, Lord, I don't know if you'll ever surpass what happened back then. Why? Why would why we think that, right? Like I don't, I don't want to just memorialize a moment or a mentor, an individual. I want to say, like, God, you do something. That, and, and the way that he works, right, is by multiplying a movement, by moving past beyond just the individual. And so if discipleship is done right, the ministry has increased by the time the leader is gone. So once that leader passes away, retires, moves, whatever it is. If discipleship's done right, that ministry should increase by the time the leader is gone. It should not take a step back. It should take a step forward. Now, will there be a bump in the road because, oh, we missed this person or this person? Sure, I, I get some of that stuff will happen. But if done right, you should not just need, by the, by the way, so um, when I, when you guys finally retire me at age 82, right, okay, and you say, you... You gotta no. We we got you gotta move on, Trav. You can't be our pastor anymore, okay? And I fight you for a little bit, and I put a little guilt trip on you about how Moses really just started his journey at eighty. Give me a little more time, okay? When I really start pushing back against you guys, he, he, here's what I know: the goal should not be this person's not here. We need somebody to fill this position. I know that's gotta happen at some level, but what really should happen by the time that I'm no longer serving is. Look at all these people who are serving in different ways. Look at how it's been multiplied. It's not just on the individual. It's what God has done among a group of people. 
not just that one individual. Healthy ministries will never have an opportunity problem if they address their capacity problem. As a church, we do not have an opportunity problem. We have a capacity problem. We do not have the needed leaders to take care of all the people that are coming. We don't have those that are willing to say, I will step out and do this to address all the people who are saying, disciple me, mentor me, teach me. Um, we have more opportunities here in this city to address needs. We have more missionaries that are contacting saying, could your church lend some support here? We do not have an opportunity problem. We have a capacity problem. And the only way to fix that is through discipleship, through mentoring, through, not addition, multiplication. Taking what you have, spreading it to others, and then seeing it go even beyond you. And I would just say that the most effective ministries align with God's agenda and develop potential leaders. This, my friends, has got to happen. The most effective ministries align with God's agenda and develop potential leaders. So it's always, always saying, I want to line up with what God's called us to do and let us figure out how we can develop other potential leaders out there. So just to consider it in this way, one of the ways that we want to do in all aspects, so me as what's called the lead pastor, to you maybe a group leader, or maybe you serve in a ministry, the goal is not for it to all be so dependent on you that if you take a week vacation, they can't do this job. The goal should be you are constantly multiplying yourself so that if you're there, it's great, and if you're not, guess what? It's great. That's how God works. Scenario leadership training in the church. Years ago, when I first started pastoring, I would ask pastoral mentors of mine. I'd say, hey, can you listen to this clip of me preaching? Now, it wasn't streaming it online, by the way. It was like a cassette tape when I started preaching. Okay, can you listen to this cassette tape? I was trying to explain that to my boys. I'm like, what did you do? I was like, you had to wind it. Okay, like, and like, can you listen to this tape of me preaching? And you know what? These mentors of mine, they were wonderful and they were encouraging. And a lot of them had harsh critics in their life. So they didn't want to be that to me. So I would say, teach me to do better. And you know what they'd say? It was great. No, I appreciate that. But how could I do that next time better? Nothing. Okay. I know there's something that you could tell me that I need to either do it differently next time or not do. Like, just tell me. And every time I'd ask, it'd be like, no, it's great, man. Nothing I'd change in the world. So then I come here and then all of a sudden we start having these residents preach for, for us. And they'd ask me after they preached, they said, Pastor Travis, how'd I do? Great, man. Anything you change? Not a thing in the world. Well, what could I do different? I wouldn't change a thing. And as soon as I said, I thought, oh, I just did the very thing I hated. Okay. And so I looked at this guy and I said, all right, here's three things you did great. Here's three things you need to work on or else no one's ever going to listen to you again, okay? And I just let it go, okay? Now, what I do, literally, every time I listen to somebody preach, I promise them, I'm going to give you three positives and three things you need to work on. Why? Because we all need that, right? So, so in church, sometimes we are so nice, we're not really helpful. It's great. It's wonderful. I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. No, you should change that, Okay. When you said that, that was heresy. That didn't make sense. You kind of flubbed over your words there. You, you kind of pushy here. You talk what, it, what you could do that better. You did these things great. I want to encourage you. I want to fan that flame. But I want you to do it better, right? Folks, this is what happens, and this is what really could change. What I'm praying for in our church right now is that if you're a gospel group leader, 
you'd have somebody being on the wings there for you. And some weeks, you wouldn't teach the lesson, you say, you're going to teach it. And you sit there and you learn. And you just take notes. And afterwards you go, let me just tell you the three great things you did. Man, you did a wonderful job involving other people. And I love the story that you started with there. And I thought the questions that you asked were really great. Okay, what, what do I need to work on? Don't jump when people don't talk. Let it have a little bit of silence time and make it awkward. Just let it be. They'll learn to talk. But you kept rushing in and teaching them. They didn't have to speak. When you ask a question, just let it sit there. Tell them you, you wait. It'd be fine, right? Second thing I'd I encourage you to do, get somebody else to read the Bible. They're listening to you talk. Just ask them, somebody read the Bible kind of stuff. And a third thing I'd ask you to do, why don't you start out with an easier question? You started out with a question of, how would you explain the Trinity to someone who's never heard of God? Maybe not start there, okay? Like, maybe start with something simple of, hey, when you're discouraged, what's something? Like, start where you can get them talking, right? You see what I'm doing? Like, just giving people the opportunity. Folks, that's necessary for us as we go forward. A leader's greatest legacy is the continuation of the work once he or she is gone. That's what the goal is. And if we're going to truly lead in ministry, it's always next man up, next woman up. Let me give you everything I got. And guess what happens? One day when I am feeble in years <laughs> and someone says, get that sword out of that boy's hand or he's going to kill himself, right? And I look back and look at all mighty men and women running to the battlefield and saying, we got this. You taught us how. That's that's what Jesus is after. And so, Father, I pray that for as a church, that you would see uh, ministry multiplication take place in such a mighty way that we would be amazed at what you can do. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you for listening to the Entrust Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast. We hope that you take what has been entrusted to you here and give it to another.